Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. In verse 6, and we're going to work our way down through 16, but really our focus is 12 through 16. We did 6 through 11 last week. Here we go. If you put these things... Before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which is given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the, on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Father God, we come before you right now. We thank you for your word. And we thank you that we don't have some ambiguous description of what a minister is, what a minister is to be, the kind of life that a minister is called to live, the sorts of attributes that, are, that belong in the life of a, of a good minister. Lord, we know that all of us in this room, if we're in Christ, we are ministers of Christ. Title is irrelevant. Help us, God, to hear from you this morning about, what, about the attributes of a good minister and may we apply these things to our lives. Father, if we find ourselves falling short, let us not live in shame and guilt and regret, but let us this morning turn away from those things and turn to you and ask you for empowerment, for forgiveness, Lord, for transformation. Lord, we know you're here. We know that you want to do a work in our lives, and we know that each and every one of us has need for transformation. And so will you come by your spirit, God? Will you change and transform us? Will you help us to hear clearly and to be willing to obey your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. One thing about my wife that many of you already know is that she is an incredible salad maker. Uh, She loves salad. She prefers salad. She studied the fine art of constructing a masterpiece salad because she is a salad contrasseur. In many circles, she's considered a salad snob. If you've ever met a coffee snob, then you know what that means. But a salad snob is... I would say 10 times worse at their snobbery. (laughs) The reason my wife's uh, salads are so incredible is because she chooses all the ingredients uh, that she puts in them, she chooses them carefully. And, And she starts with the lettuce. Now, if you've ever gone out to eat with my wife, the first question that she will ask the, the, the host or the waitress when they come to the table is, what kind of lettuce do you have? Because that will be the determining factor if she is going to order a salad or not. If they say iceberg lettuce, my wife's out. And in fact, we can just pretty much mark that off the list of restaurants we're going to eat at. If you think iceberg lettuce is, uh, is a salad, my wife would like to have a, a word with you after the service. <laughs> because she knows that it's not. Now, now how, do you, how do you know that there's, no, there's really no nutrient value in iceberg lettuce? How do you know? Because of the color. Because it's white. It has no nutrients really in it. If you look at the, the nutrient uh, uh, context of iceberg lettuce versus 
other deeper green types of, of lettuces, you'll, you'll notice there's a huge difference. It's all about the pigment. It's all about the coloring. It's the attribute of the lettuce that tells you right away whether that lettuce is uh, dense in nutrients or whether it is weak. And so my wife will ask the, the, the hostess and they'll say, oh, we have a, a lot of times they'll have a mix of iceberg lettuce and, and, and romaine. You know, romaine can also be very white to light green and, and doesn't have a lot of nutrients, particularly if you get down to the base of those things, you can see that. If you get to the top end of those romaine lettuce leaves, you can get some deeper green things, and it all depends on the season, right? So she gets somewhat excited when she hears romaine. Uh, but, but then uh, her, 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 she really, what really turns her engine on is when she hears mixed greens, because mixed greens are dense, they're dark, they're, they're pigmented with different types of um, purples and, and dark greens and different things like that, and they are full of nutrients. Again, how does she know? Because of the color. So when my wife constructs her salads, she goes into the grocery store and she looks at the, the, the various different vegetables that are available to her, and she chooses them based on what? On their color on the way that they feel, their touch, if they firm, the way that they smell, you know, did, are they fresh? And, and she starts to do what's called an organoleptic test. Organoleptic test is, uh, they run them in various different labs, and it's, it's, a, it's a visual test, it's a smell test, it's a taste test, it's various different things to kind of give you, do, does this whatever it is, have the attributes, the taste, the smell, the, the various different things that I mentioned, does it have the attributes of what we believe it does? If it does, then yes, it passed the test. So my wife is a chemist at heart when it comes to salad. And she totally selects all of her nutrients on that. She, she can't send them to a lab, although that's probably how the waitresses feel when she starts to ask questions. Like, dude, do you want a, an analytical analysis of this salad here today, or can we just get on with the ordering? So uh, she, and one other thing I'll tell you about my wife is that she says when her salads come, she, says, she asks them, hey, can you add more lettuce into it? And I say, why do you say that all the time? She goes, because lettuce is cheap, man. So we, we can just get more of it, and they should be fine with that. But, but her, 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 her ability to, to do this, to make a good salad, all comes back to the ingredients, doesn't it? And it comes back to her selecting the right ingredients. And she selects those ingredients based on the attributes of those different vegetables. Well, this is sort of what Paul is talking to us about in 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. He wants us to understand the attributes of a good minister. He wants us to understand that, that, that ministers of Christ, you will be able to see them. You'll be able to smell them. You'll be able to taste them because you can see, you can taste, you can have all the sights and senses because they're in Christ, or they should be. You know, we have to be careful that the soil that we're, we're, we're allowing ourselves to grow up in is deep and rich and has enough nutrient value to bring out the attributes of Christ in our life. And so, when, when, back to this solid analogy, if, if the nutrients all come from the ground, if you don't have the right soil, if your soil's not fertilized, if it's not dense, if it doesn't have, you know, um, pardon my French, but any chicken poo in there to make it all nutrient dense, then you're not going to get, you're not going to yield the kind of attributes that will tell all of us that this is highly nutritious. That also, friends, goes along with your Christian walk. What soil are you planted in today? What are you absorbing up into your, what, what kind of information are you allowing into your body? And because it will produce an attribute, either a worldly attribute or a Christ-like attribute. Paul is telling Timothy, it's, a, it's sort of a personal letter to his protege. He's writing him a letter saying, listen, man, you're in ministry, therefore, you have to be planted and rooted in the right ground so that you can yield the right attributes so that people can see Jesus Christ in you. And, and I would say that that letter, obviously the Holy Spirit penning this letter through the Apostle Paul is telling us um, that this doesn't just apply to Timothy because we're all ministers. We're all, those, those who are in Christ, we're all called to the ministry 
in a sense. You might not have a title. You, actually, you do have a title. It's called Servant of Jesus Christ. That is your title. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be an elder. You don't have to be a deacon. You don't have to be, uh, you know, a director of a ministry to say, hey, I'm in ministry. You're in ministry. And if you're in ministry, then this message applies to you. We, we talked about in the, in the first six, verses 6 through 11, we talked about six different attributes last week that you should be able to see in the life of a believer. Uh, first and foremost, a good minister will point out errors. Be doctrinally sound person. He'll be trained in the word of God. He'll reject worthless falsehood and speculation. He will be disciplined unto godliness. He will work hard and hope big. He will exercise biblical authority. That takes us through verse 11. Now, As we come to verse 12, the, the, the theme is the same. Paul is Still talking to Timothy about being a good minister, and, and, and he's going to go on and give us six more attributes relating to uh, what Timothy's life ought to look like in the presence of those in the church at Ephesus. The first attribute that, if you're taking notes, is a good minister will not let culture hinder his calling. He will not let culture hinder his calling. Look at verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth. Let no one despise you for your youth. A, a good minister will not allow his culture to tell him that he's not qualified to step into the calling that God has placed upon his life, that God has, God has called him to. You have to understand, uh, Timothy is growing up in a, in a Greek culture. He's planted in the church of Ephesus. He's, he's growing up at the, in this church, and the, the, the sort of culture of that church is if you were under 40 years old, uh, you, you really, uh, you know, you're really not a man. You're really not somebody that can be considered wise. And so if you are under 40, that, that's really the word that he uses there um, when, when he talks about... Um, when he talks about youth, that word is describing somebody under the age of 40. And so Timothy's probably in the age, some people, many believe he's about 30, 35 years old. In his culture, his culture would say, well, you're not quite there yet. You're not quite wise enough yet. And, and it's not that they wouldn't lend into the credence of people perhaps being wise at this age, but it would be something that they would have to continually prove before the people in order for them to, you would have to earn their respect. Paul is telling Timothy, do not cower to the culture. I don't care what they say. It doesn't matter if the culture accepts you as wise or not. You have a calling on your life. You are called by God. You step into that calling, Timothy, and you do not let the culture dictate what you will do with it. Listen, uh, we all know that age has zero to do with wisdom, right? I know people older than dirt that are not spiritually smart at all, right? I know people that are incredibly young and, and vibrant who have incredible insights in the Lord and, and have great spiritual in, intuition and all these kinds of things. It has nothing to do with age, and yet our culture might say something about that, right? Our culture might say like, hey, if you're 12 years old and, and you're going to tell an adult something about the Lord, give me a break. We still have that cultural kind of thing to overcome. We have all kinds of those types of cultural things that may stop us from stepping into our calling, may stop us from saying, well, I don't know, the world isn't really accepting me, so maybe I really don't have that gifting. No, not true. If God has called you, you step into it and you don't walk by sight, you walk by what? Faith. You don't allow other people to tell you what ministry you're supposed to be in. You let the Lord tell you what ministry you're supposed to be in and then you don't forsake it. You step into it and you walk strong in it. Listen, some of the, um, some of the, uh, the, the most profound uh, pastors in our culture today stepped into their ministries at young ages. Uh, Greg Laurie, who uh, planted um, Harvest Christian Fellowship at the age of 19, and check this out, dude. He had only been saved for two years. Two years. He sat under Pastor Chuck at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and Calvary, he, he, he was immersed in the Word of God for two years. Pastor Chuck said, hey, Greg, I want you to go um, take over a Bible study out in Riverside. 30 people. 
Within a year, it became one of the fastest growing churches in America. Why? Why? Because he was hip and cultural and, and all of that stuff had zero to do with that because he taught the Bible. Because he, listen, he had the gift of evangelism and he exercised that gift of evangelism. People got saved and they needed to be fed. And so he stepped into it. Skip Isaac, he is the, the, the pastor of Calvary in Albuquerque. When he was 27 years old, he, he got saved around 24 or 25, I think, and 20, 22 maybe. And he, when he was 27 years old, he left Southern California, moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he started a Bible study in his home. And in just six years, it became the fastest growing church in America and is still one of the largest churches in America today. Why? Because he taught the Bible. Because there was good soil for people to be grounded in. They gave the true gospel, which means you, you have to recognize that you're a sinner, repent of that sin, turn away from that lifestyle, and turn your heart to God. And people started seeing people transformed and changed, and they wanted some of that. So you, you have these things happening. It's not about the man. It's about the, it's about the Lord. It's about his calling. What he, it's about his work, what he wants to do. I mean, if, you know, rewind back into the 1800s. You have Charles Spurgeon. You know how old Charles Spurgeon was when he took his first pastorate? 15 years old. 15 years old. He took a, 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 a congregation in a couple months from 12 to 400 people. The, he was in a Baptist church, um, and, and then he, they moved him. They said, hey, this kid has some abilities to teach, and so let's move him to London into a bigger Baptist church. It was 1,200 people at the time. Within Very quickly, within a year, it became a, a congregation of 8,000 people. Why? Because he taught the Word of God. He was, a, he was someone called into ministry, who stepped into the ministry, who said, I'm not going to allow the culture to stop me from being who I'm called to be, and he went for it, and God poured out his Holy Spirit upon those people that were there and people got saved. And they, you know, I, I'm not assuming that all 8,000 people were saved or anything, but what I'm saying is, is that um, when God calls a man, when he calls a woman, when he calls you to do something, he, 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 he pours out his Spirit upon you and upon those that are, you're ministering to because he's called you to help other people understand who he is. So he's given you a gifting, not for the purpose of elevating you, but for the purpose of elevating him. The culture will try and stop you dead in your tracks of doing what God has called you to do. Oh, we can't talk about this. Oh, we can't talk about that. I got to tiptoe around this and tiptoe around that. Listen, stop that. Stop that. Go live your life by the Bible. Do what the Bible says. If you're called into a specific ministry that maybe is to a specific group of people and you're worried about what the culture is going to think, stop it. Step into the ministry. Do what he's calling you to do. Listen, you will never, you will never ever be at peace. You'll never find satisfaction in your life if you're outside of where God wants you to be. You know that? Oh, but God, I want to do this and that and whatever. Listen, he has a way better plan than you do. And, and he's not going to let you enjoy your life of disobedience to him outside of him when he's saying, listen, I have so much, something so much better for you. So much better if you'll just listen to me. Don't let anyone despise your youth, Timothy. Don't let anyone look down on you. Of course, he needs to play within the culture, and of course he, he needs to understand the culture and understand how to speak to people and all that kind of stuff, and and be humble in the way that he approaches the elderly uh, in, his, in his culture and different things just as a means of trying to get the gospel to go forward. The methods in which we deploy the message really can be all kinds of different things, the way the, whatever the Lord's leading you to do. You know, we're, we're, we're not um, supposed to just be um, bulls in china shops as Christians. We do have to be sensitive in our culture and do our best to kind of navigate through difficult things, but do them in a loving, gentle way so that Christ can be seen. Because if you take the bowl in the china shop approach, you're, you're going to have zero, you're not, people won't listen to you. And the Lord knows that. And Jesus was like that. Jesus did not, um, you know, he could have said, the people that he was really the bowl in the china shop to were the religious people who thought that they had it going on and they didn't. And he let them know that. But to the rest of the culture, Jesus 
tried to meet them where they were. And if you look at anybody who's successful in the, in the ministry, in the Bible, or whatever, they're people that, that did their best not to just purposely offend people. They did offend people because the truth offends people, but not purposely. Not just, I, hey, I'm going to tell you what I think, and then, you know, no, you, you, it's, you don't tiptoe around stuff. You tell them the truth, but the way you do it matters, and, and, you know, how you do it, and the timing, and all of that, all that matters. So what does that mean? That means that you need to be really dependent on the Holy Spirit. You need to be really not walking. If you're, you know, don't forsake your calling, but also make sure that you're anointed. Make sure you're walking in the anointing of the Holy Spirit in your life. Not only will a good minister not allow the culture to hinder their calling, but secondly, a good minister will be a good example. Look at verse, the rest of verse 12. But set the believers as an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Several years back, I was at a trade show in uh, L.A., and uh, I was in the uh, dietary supplement industry, and um, I, I had, uh, at this point in time, it was, um, I had really focused on my career, not so much my body, and so I was super overweight at this point. And uh, you're like, at this point? But, um, so, so he was, I was overweight at the time, and um, I was selling, at this time we were featuring this weight loss ingredient in our, at, this, at our trade show, right? So um, we have a booth, and, and uh, my brother and I, and a couple other guys are there, and we're, um, we're, we're trying to sell this weight loss ingredient in this, in this you know, and, and again, I'm overweight trying to sell a weight loss ingredient. That's like going to a cosmetic dentistry and the dentist walking in and he's got jacked up teeth. It's like, wait, wait a second. I'm not sure if I, <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm in the right place, right? Because you're like, you're not taking your own counsel. Like, like, you know what I mean? So, so a guy walks up to me and, and he was, he's, he points out that reality to me. He said, hey, you guys sell weight loss products. Look like you need to try some of your products. And I was like, oh, Hey, it hurt. It hurt, but it was true. I was a poor example, considering we're selling weight loss ingredients. I was a, I was a poor example. Interesting enough, <laughs> this is just the way it works. The guy that said it to me happened to be a high-profile author and an expert in relationships who had also been divorced. So I, I guess the moral of the story is that's like calling the, the pot... Uh, the, the pot calling the kettle black, right? I mean, he, he, he's telling me I need to take my own advice and he needs to take his own advice. He was an author of relationships who ended up not working out his own, uh, you know, the, the, his, the, the information that he gives to people who wasn't translating to his own life. He ended up getting a divorce. And I don't say that to backlash on the guy. I say that because, listen, your example matters. It matters to the kind of, to the degree of how people will take you and and how serious they'll take the information that you're giving them. That's why Paul is so emphasizing to Timothy, you need to be a good example. You, know, you, can't, you can't walk around in the world and you know, looking just like the world and then go, I can't believe people don't know I'm a Christian. I mean, you know, seriously, uh, how can they not know I'm a Christian? Because you're a poor example, that's why. Because you're not allowing the light of Jesus Christ to shine through you in such a way that they could see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's why. It's all about example. It's about being, being a poor example. Your, your words need to match your life. Your words need to match your life. Um, Paul is telling Timothy, listen, if a good minister's they, they, they need to be people of example. And he goes on here and he gives us sort of five different ways that we need to be good examples. He says, first, you need to be a good example in speech, in what you say. This is important because Jesus said a man's speech reflects a man's heart. Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 through 37, he said, you brood of vipers, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to unsaved people, right? He's speaking to the... Um, to the people in the highways and the byways. No, he's talking to the religious people. He's talking to the people who say they're great examples, who think that they're living at a higher level, who are actually far worse than the, the worst sinner that doesn't, isn't trying to portray himself as that. He said, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you're evil? 
Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus wants us to understand that, that our words match what's going on inside of our hearts. That's why the Bible tells us be diligent with what? Your words? No, be diligent with your heart, for out of it spring the issues of life. Jesus said it another way. He said, hey, it's not what um, comes into you that defiles you. It's what comes out of you. When he's talking to the same people about breaking the law on Sabbath and eating on the Sabbath day, and he said, dude, you guys don't get it. You don't understand. It's an inside problem. It's not an external problem. You guys are so external about keeping the laws and doing all these things that you're missing the entire point. It's, it's about the heart. God looks at the heart. First, you need to be a good example in speech. Second, you need to be a good, a good, a good example when it comes to conduct in what you do. The conduct of the minister is crucial. People are more apt to listen, follow the lifestyle of a man than they are his teachings. People are more apt to follow in your footsteps in what you do than what you say. Do you know that? How do we know that to be true? Anybody parents here? You tell your kids, don't you dare use those kind of, that kind of language. And then you're over there, blankety, blank, blank, blank. And your kid then all of a sudden goes, blankety, blank, blank, blank. What do you expect? You're telling them, don't do something. You're being a poor example of it. And then they do it. <laughs> it, it it's just amazing to me. I, I've never really cursed in my, um, in my house with my kids. I never, never really cursed. Uh, you know, after I became a believer, all of that sort of language went out the window for me. But um, one time I was in the garage with my oldest son, and he, uh, I was working on something. I had my back to, I was on a bench working on something, and he comes up behind me, and he goes, and he was probably, what, nine or ten years old at the time. He goes, what the hell are you doing? And I said, <laughs> I turned around and I was like, what? What did you just say? And, and I said, what would you say? And he goes, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> I, I said, where did you hear that? He goes, I just heard it on TV. <laughs> I was like, you see how easily, how absorbable, how easy that is. Our conduct matters in the way that we do things. You can't, um, you can't legislate righteousness. You'd be a good example of it. If you're a poor example of it, people will follow that. If you're a good example of it, your kids will follow that, you know, to, to some level. We need to be careful with how we're living. You, listen, you have all kinds of liberties in Christ. Paul says all things are lawful, but listen to this. Not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. Ask yourself, is what I'm doing beneficial? Like if people look at me, are they going to say like, whoa, I, that's beneficial. I'm going to observe from that and that's going to bring me closer to Christ. I would say that in your liberties, those are the kind of things you need to be considering. Is it bringing people to Christ? Not, do I have the freedom to do it? Is it leading people to Christ? I'm called to be a good example in conduct. It's not whether or not I can drink alcohol. The question is, is whether or not that is going to draw the people that I'm with into a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. No one is, and, and I'm not anti-alcohol, by the way, but no one has ever said, man, I have grown so much smarter drinking beer. It's just made me a better person. I make the greatest choices when I have about six or so in me, and then I, you know, that makes me, yeah, no one ever says that. So, so the reality is, is that you have liberties, but you need to be careful with those liberties because you need to be a good example. We are called to be holy in conduct, 1 Peter 5.15, to live in the meekness and, and wisdom, James 3.13, to be honorable in, in, um, in conduct, 1 Peter 2. 2.12, to be respectful and pure in our marriage, 1 Peter 3.2. We are reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter 10.31 that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, that we do all for the glory of God. It's all about our example. Thirdly, a good minister must be a good example 
in love, in his attitude towards other people. I mean, this doesn't really need much explanation, does it, to, to be a, an example of love? Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. It's not so much about what you can do, but it's about how you do it. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is the foundation and the basis of the Christian life. I mean, it's, it's, it's really ultimately the way that God demonstrated his love for us, he, the way that he demonstrated who he is and, and how he cares for us. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and while we were still sinners, Christ died. He didn't wait for you to clean yourself up before he goes, okay, now you're savable. He, he took you at your worst and he said, I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you if you will look to me. I'm going to, my son's going to die for you because I love you at your worst, not when you were cleaned up. Jesus speaks about the kind of love that we're called to live in. John chapter 15, verse 13, greater love is no one than this, than someone who would lay down his life for his friends. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that gives beyond what is even comprehensible, even unto death. Fourthly, a good minister is one, uh, uh, some, fourthly, a person that's a good example is called to be one in faith, literally in faithfulness towards God. The context of the word faith here isn't so much about belief and trust. That's not what he's talking about. He's not telling Timothy, hey, Timothy, you need to believe God more. You need to trust God more. That's not what he was saying. He's saying, hey, Timothy, you need to be faithful in the ministry. You need to be faithful in what God's calling you to do. You're a steward of God, and you need to be faithful as such. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 and 46, Who then is the faithful and wise servant who his master has set over his household to give them uh, their food at the proper time? Blessed is a servant whom his master will find in so doing when he comes. Being faithful. Somebody who is faithful. And it's not about what you have. It's about what you're doing with what you have. It's about being faithful to God. You know, you, you might have a little ministry. You might have a few disciples. You might have a few resources that the Lord's entrusted in you. And he's saying, hey, you're a steward of these things. And as you are faithful with those things, he adds to them and makes them bigger. He brings more people. He gives you more financial, um, you know, blessings so that you can be a blessing to other people. He is looking at your faithfulness. And so is the world. You know, it's so interesting to me. When you see somebody rise up, I would say in the ranks of the pastorate, right? And they start out with a few people and the next thing you know, they have thousands of people coming and they're being invited to go all these different places to speak at all these different events and all this kind of stuff. And, and the heart can, uh, can become so hardened and, and you, they be, a lot of these guys, the rock star pastor kind of mentality begins to be developed because so many people are propping these people up on a pedestal. And what ends up happening is they fall. Why? Because they weren't being faithful. Because they lost their faithfulness along the way. Listen, do not think for a second that you can look out at somebody's life and say, oh, they're, just, they're, they're not being faithful. There's plenty of people that are prospering that have um, you know, big ministries and all these kinds of things that are not faithful in, in the ministry. God will strip you. God will strip you if you're not faithful. He will bring your sin to light. Sin is fun for a season until everybody else knows about it. And then it's not fun anymore. Be careful and be faithful to the Lord. And faithfulness is all about when nobody else is looking. 
Being faithful is all about, you know, doing the right thing when nobody else knows what's going on in your life. That's being faithful. That's what he's talking about. Timothy, you want to be a good example. You be faithful in the ministry. This brings us to our fifth and final way that Timothy is called to be a good example in purity. And this is relating to sexual matters. You know, the sexual scandals that go on in churches and damage the ministry and the ministers and the, 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 the congregates is just horrible. Let me let you in on a little secret, okay? The enemy knows the chemistry that exists between man and woman. And he's very, very uh, good at uh, creating an environment in which that chemistry can work its way out, no matter who you are, right? You think like, I'll never do that. Oh, he has you right where he wants you. You'll never do that. Listen, you're capable of things that you can't even comprehend because there's an old man in you. And that old man can come out of you, and, and I'm not calling you all adulterers, by the way. I'm just saying that, there, that if you let your guard down in that area, you are open for that because you're not guarding yourself in that area. Oh, I'm strong enough. How many people have said that? I would never do something like that. You know, that's why here at our church, we're very, very conscious about that. Very conscious about men and women meeting and all of that kind of stuff. I would say our culture would say, oh, that's silly. I mean, why are you guys, why do you, you know, a man and a woman should, you know, they, they can be friends and they can do this and that. Listen, I think wisdom would tell you that that's not a good idea. It's not a good idea, period. I don't care. It's not that you can't, have you know a sister in Christ and you guys love each other in Christ and all that kind of stuff but but dude seriously you you not be texting each other after hours and your spouse doesn't know about it hey how are you today da 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 listen I always cc my wife on everything I do I for the most part I try to that's something that I try to practice um, we as an eldership here at our church we 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 do not get alone in a, in a room with another woman or we don't we don't really um we we also don't allow really women getting alone with men to minister to them men should minister to men and women should minister to women uh, just because that's a practical thing and you know how easy it is for the enemy to uh, do something if 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 now you know as your pastor and mike as as assistant pastor brian is assistant pastor if we're gonna if we're gonna counsel a woman guess what my wife's gonna be there my wife's going to be there, or Mike's going to be there, or Brian's going to be there. If they're, if they're doing the counseling, same, same thing. Our, we're going to protect ourselves because we know the enemy knows this stuff. Timothy says, dude, you need to be very, very careful about purity because the, the, the enemy knows us. He knows that what can happen if we're not careful. Listen, I, there was one of, the, one of the most influential pastors in Calvary Chapel five or six years ago or seven years ago that... Um, you know, he got the rock star status. How awesome. And then the next thing you know, the guy, um, you know, ends up being in um, m multiple affairs, cheated on his wife hundreds of times, and uh, ends up all of this coming to light. And, uh, you know, not only, listen, not only did it almost wreck their church, but it also wrecked his marriage, wrecked his relationship with his kids. And the last thing I heard, that he was tending bar down somewhere in some uh, other state. You don't think it can happen to you? Are you serious? Be careful. You're not as strong as you think you are. Timothy says, or, or Paul says to Timothy, you need to keep your purity in check. You need to keep your sexual conduct pure. That's why uh, Paul says one of the, one of the elements of, of being a... Uh, a qualified elder in the church is to be a one-woman man, to be the, to, to, uh, the husband of one wife, literally to be a one-woman man, that you're not a player, that you're not out there, you're not a womanizer, you're not doing these things. You're, you're, you're being a good example when it comes to purity. I love what David Guzik said about these five examples of being, or five areas of being a good example. He said, these are the criteria by which to assess a pastor. If he's smart, if he's funny, if he's cool, if he dresses sharp, if, he, if he's popular, or if he has any other number of 
things matter little. You must look for a pastor who is an example in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Those are the kind of leadership people that you want to see in your church. How in the world can you, can you even know that about your leadership if you don't know them? How can you ever judge whether that's going on if you don't know them? That's why we're called to be close in our relationships with each other. You'll see very quickly, I'm not perfect. You'll see very quickly, Mike and Brian, they're not perfect. They're pretty close. Those guys are. Not me. Those guys are better than me. But, but, um, you know, but what you'll see is genuineness. I think you'll see the elements of these things that's people that love Jesus, that want to elevate Jesus, that want their lives to, to matter for eternity, not necessarily here on earth, and um, who are busy at work in the ministry trying to serve the Lord to the best of their abilities. That's what you'll find here in this leadership. And I, and I, and I want to encourage you to get to know us because we want to get to know you too. And, um, you know, it's, it's so crazy. And again, we're a small church and that's okay, but I, I don't ever want to lose that I, the idea of the fact that I have heard over and over and over again, I've never had um, my senior pastor invite me over for dinner, never had that happen before, you know. To me, that's super sad. Now, practically speaking, I know that that's not practical in a big church where you have thousands of people, but I think that should be happening with the leadership of the church. If you have a big church, you should have a big leadership staff, and that staff should be able to connect with the people. You should be able to tell within the staff of the people What's really going on in the, behind the closed doors in the church? You know, you see on, on, on the internet, you see guys that are leaving different ministries, and then you hear, you know, the different um, reasons why they leave the ministry and, and, and things like that because of the things that go on behind closed doors. You want to know who it is that you're following. You want to know, you're, you're following Jesus, that, that's clear, but you want to know the people that are in the leadership of your church, you want to know them. You want to know what kind of people they are. You want to understand them, you know. There's 52 weeks in a year. I can get together with 52 couples or 52 people in one year. Once a week, I can do that, set, it, set that time aside, and I can connect with people so that I have a relationship with them. And, and I, you know, we really don't, it's not about just casual talk. We want to get to know each other real, real quickly to the best of our ability that we can. And we've gotten to know many of you guys here, and it's such a blessing to be able to get to know you. So anyway, why did I say that? Because I think that's what David Guzik was saying. You need to know your pastors. You need to know your leadership. Well, not only will a good minister not let culture hinder his call, he will be a good example for others to follow, but thirdly, a good minister will be devoted to giving others God's word. Look at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Paul indicates to Timothy hear that he, he intends to come to see him again. He's saying, hey, uh, until I come to you, um, you know, devote yourself to these specific things. He's saying, I'm coming, but devote yourself to these things. By the way, what he's not saying is when I get there, stop doing them. That's not what he's saying. What he's telling Timothy is he's exhorting Timothy, I think in an area where Timothy is a little timid. When, when Timothy, because of the culture that he lives in and the kind of uh, character and nature of his own personality... Um, I think he was inherently a timid person. I think he was inherently a person that was constantly wondering, like, why would God call me? I think if I read the scriptures right, that's the, the idea that I get from Paul as he's talking to Timothy. Um, and so it would be easy for him to go, well, I don't know if I should, I should be careful about how I present different things. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. But, but, but the reality is, is that Paul is telling Timothy there's three specific things relating to the Word of God that you need to devote yourself to, literally give yourself over to. And they are public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. First, the public reading of Scripture. Uh, do you know how, how blessed you are to have a Bible in your lap right now? Do you know, you know how many of you guys have one, two Bibles at your house? How many of you guys have three Bibles at your house? How many of you guys have four Bibles at your house? How many of you guys have five Bibles at your house? How many of you guys have ten Bibles at your house? You see what I'm saying? Like, everybody here has at least one or two Bibles in their house. 
in their presence. And we are so blessed. In this culture, in this day and age, it's not like people walked around with scrolls in their back pocket. You know, number one, if you had a set of scrolls, even one set of scrolls, which would be the Old Testament, by the way, if you had a, the, the scroll of Isaiah in your possession at your house, man, you were very, very well to do. Almost nobody had that. Almost nobody had that. That's why synagogues back in this day were sort of libraries. And so people, it was like a civic center. The, the, the church was a civic center. That's why I, I feel like we need to do more than just this twice a week. Or, or, you know, we need to be open for the public to come in. And that's why we started the coffee shop. One of the reasons and why we want to bridge community within our church is because it's supposed to be a civic center. It's supposed to be a place people come and get connected. Um, and so back in that day, they would be able to go into the synagogue and maybe look at a scripture, read the scripture, have the, uh, the, the guy on staff there, you know, meet with them and read the scroll with them. They didn't have it at home. And so it was incredibly important that Timothy read the word of God when the people assembled together because they weren't going to get it anywhere else. And by the way, when you left there, the only thing you left with was your memory of what was spoken. You know what's awesome? That the word of God never returns void. Is that cool? Because my memory is sucks a lot. And I can't remember certain things a lot. I'm like, man, what was that again? Dang it, I can't remember. But you know, the word of God never returns void. And, uh, and so, you know, you hear it and it, and it just kind of comes out and then it starts to do its work. That's why we read the scriptures in the very beginning. We're dedicated to reading the scriptures publicly. We want you to, to get in the Bible. We want you to read the word of God. Not just a verse, but we go verse by verse, and we want you to hear scripture in context from one point to another to the point in which we do as much as we can. Like I had to break up these, these into two different sermons, but, but we always go back and say this was what was happening because we want you to understand the scriptures because the scriptures are what have life in them. Ultimately, anything else that's spoken outside of the scriptures may or may not be worth listening to, period. But at the end of the day, and I can see that on your faces sometimes. I'm like, well, <laughs> that didn't go so well. But, uh, uh, you know, the, the reality is, is that the scripture is what has life in it. The scripture is what the Holy Spirit uses to, to begin to birth new fruit in your life and different things like that. So you want to be dedicated. Um, you know, there needs to be a dedication to the reading of public scripture. We could literally read the word of God, close it, call it a day, pray, and, and go on your way, and you've had something. You've had enough to transform your life. That's really what matters. Uh, Paul goes on here, though, and he says there is a, a couple other portions of the man of God who's giving the word of God. He also, he, he, there needs to be a portion of exhortation, a portion of teaching. And so that, that's what we, we do. What, what's the difference between exhortation and teaching. Perhaps you've heard it this way. It's preaching and teaching. Um, the, the idea of teaching. Teaching is instruction. Uh, preaching is exhortation. Preaching is helping you gain understanding. Ex uh, uh, you know, preaching, I mean, teaching is helping you gain understanding. Preaching is helping you get fire under your feet to do what you just heard. It's the application of uh, the word that you've heard. And so uh, Paul is telling Timothy, you know, read the scriptures, but then preach and teach. Uh, give people understanding. I, lo I love that part at, um, when the children of Israel came back from Babylon and Ezra, it says, he stood up among the people and he read the scriptures and then he gave understanding. That to me, like, for whatever reason, that right there, he taught them the word of God. And you know what the reaction of the people was? Dude, they fell on their faces weeping before God when his word was read and they read it all day and they wanted to hear what God had to say and when they did, they were so impacted by it, it, it literally transformed the entire environment. And everybody was weeping before them and they're like, whoa, whoa. Ezra's like, whoa, 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 we're supposed to be rejoicing. We just came out of captivity. Let's rejoice and all this kind of stuff. But the word of God knows exactly what it needs to do in every heart. So you dedicate it to the Word of God, and then you preach the Word of God, and you teach the Word of God. That's what we do here. We go line by line. We read the Scripture. We exhort you and teach you what the Scriptures are saying to the best of our ability, and then hopefully that makes a difference in your life. 
Fourthly, a good minister is one who will not neglect his gifting. Look at verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid hands on you. Everyone has a gift from God. Everyone has a gifting, but not everybody uses their gifting. And that can happen for a lot of different reasons. It can be fear, fear, it can be doubt, it can be busyness, it can be immaturity, it can be sin, it can be all kinds of things. They can keep you from using your gifting. For Timothy, it was fear. For Timothy, it was timidness. He, he was afraid to say and do the wrong things. And so countless times already through the first four chapters of this personal letter that Paul's writing to Timothy, Paul is exhorting Timothy to get over himself and to step into the calling that he has twice already. Twice already he's saying, dude, come on. God's called you. Stop it. Get over your fears and just move forward. It's not, a, it's not wrong to have a fear. It's wrong to let that fear stop you from what God is calling you to do. I, I'm fearful. I get fearful. I get afraid at times. And I know some people, they're like, wait a second, that's a sin. No, you know what the sin is? The sin is allowing fear to stop you from doing something. Um, that, that's the sin. Fear itself um, is, is God's given us all kinds of fear. Fear can be a good thing. When I'm walking down the alley in the middle of the night and I, some dude pops out and I don't feel right in that situation, that's, a, that's, a, that's an alert God has given me. So, you know, but, but fear cannot stop you. That's my point. If fear turns into doubt, you're in sin. And, and you know, for me, I, I'm much like Timothy. I, I, I write out my sermons because, you know what, I have a fear that there'll come a point in time where I will have nothing left to say. And I'll be like, oh, man. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I, I, I write them out. I try not to refer to them. I, what I try and do is get my thoughts out as I let the Holy Spirit speak to me. And, and as I'm working through my sermons, I help myself understand that. Uh, hopefully it makes sense to me at least when I'm reading it and then I'm like, okay, I think it kind of makes sense so we'll, we'll, we'll give it out to, to, the, to the people. But I, I write out my thoughts and I make them very, uh, in, in a very comprehensive way so that um, I can keep on track and so that it's a fear also for me and I'm being transparent with you that um, you know, there was a comes a time when, when I was, uh, and, I'm, and I've grown in that as in the Lord as I continue to face my fear it goes away. And I use my notes less and less and less, but they're there. And so uh, we did church in the park last year. And uh, it ended up happening that my iPad died. It, it was too hot. And so I'm giving my sermon, and all of a sudden, and don't think that the enemy doesn't know you well. Because I was giving my sermon, I was like just maybe 10 minutes into it, and my iPad said too hot, and it just went blank. And I made a mention of it. I said, oh, my iPad's not working. <laughs> Boy, are we in trouble. <laughs> but you know what was amazing? Is God, God um, because of the process I go through personally when I study, God bring back to remembrance all of my points. I never once felt uncomfortable when I was teaching. I never So the point is that God meets you. You know, and, and, and as you're, you know, he's growing me in that area in my life where Hey, I, that needed to happen. The enemy meant it for evil, but God meant it for good because he wants me to grow. Do you know from that moment on, I, I grew way more confident in the Holy Spirit and my ability to hear the Holy Spirit as I'm teaching the Bible in the pulpit, like literally, uh, you know, moment by moment, seconds and seconds and seconds going through your mind, you know, words come in and you're like, should I say that or not? Boom, oops, too late. I said it, so... Um, but, but, but the, the idea is that fear can stop you from doing whatever it is. I would say fear is the biggest thing. Fear is the biggest thing. People don't, they either don't feel worthy enough to do what God's calling them to do. They're, they're afraid of being successful. Maybe that can be a, a real issue. Um, you know, they, maybe they don't want the responsibility. They can be afraid of not succeeding and what that looks like. You can be a, a, afraid of um, all kinds of different things, but Ultimately, here, here's what you need to know. God created you. And he knew what you would be like post-fall. He knew your struggles. He knew the fears that you would have. He knew every weakness that you would ever have. And then he called you. 
And he, he didn't just say, well, well, okay, this person's pretty good at this or this person's pretty good at that. No, he said, I'll make them good at this. I'll make them good at that. A lot of times we go with whatever's natural to us and what we think we're good at. That's our gifting, right? I would say absolutely not. I would say that that can be your gifting, but I would say this, that don't ever forsake something God has put on your heart thinking that, well, I'm just not really good at that. Because, listen, when, when Paul is telling Timothy, do not neglect your gifts, there, there's, there's a couple things he's saying. He's saying, you know, don't just shut them out and not do them. But there's also another kind of neglect that many, many people um, actually fall into, and that is the ne neglect to cultivate your gift. What does that mean? Don't you just, when you, when you get the gift of teaching, don't you just pop in the pulpit and the next thing you know you're Billy Graham? Uh-uh, that's not the way it works. You, you don't just all of a sudden, God's called you to teach, you don't just get a download, you know, of the Bible in your brain. I wish we were in the matrix. We would have the download in, in our brain. We could just download information and get over our fears and all of that kind of stuff. But God wants us to work through things. There's a cultivation that happens. Listen, if I could, I would get my th first three teachings, and you would probably never come back to church again. I give them to you. You're, you're questioning right now whether you're going to come back, but that's okay. So here, here's the thing is, it's cultivated in me. God has cultivated that gift. There are gifts in your life that aren't, you're not just going to be instantly great at. But if God's called you to them, you step into them and you do them anyway. A lot of it's humility. A lot of it's, you know, God working through getting you over things. Do not neglect the gift that you've been given. How has he been given it? Through prophecy of the laying hands of the hands. Now, here, here's what he's saying is that there was maybe a council at one point, uh, you know, in Jerusalem probably, and they, or whatever, these, these teachers came. Maybe they came to where Timothy was. Maybe they were with Paul. At some point, maybe it was the elders of the church that he, he grew up in, you know. Um, but but some, at some point, there was a group of, a council of people who were considered elders or leadership of the church, and they said, prophesied some sort of gifting over Timothy, and then they laid their hands on it, confirming this was from God. That's the point of that. When, when we do an ordination service, that's what that is. Um, it's basically us acknowledging what God is doing in somebody's life when he's calling somebody to something. We ordained Mike, uh, Pastor Mike, you know, a little while ago. And the, Brian and I, we, the elders, Dan, we, we laid hands on Mike. We, we didn't make the guy a pastor. He was already a pastor. We just acknowledged what God was doing. That's the idea. Now, here's what can happen. Sometimes people will walk up to you and you go, man, I got a word for you. God is calling you to go to Africa and go be a missionary over there. Do you believe that? And you're like, wait, what? God's calling me to be a missionary? Oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, we're going to pray over you right now because that's your calling. Here's what I'll say to you about prophesy, people prophesying over you your gifting. Be careful about that because uh, anybody can come up to you and say anything, and they can say it's from God. Right? So, so here's what I found to be true in my own life, and I think it's true in almost every other person's life is if God is calling you into a ministry, he'll let you know. I mean, it's not going to just be through somebody else coming up to you saying, hey, God's calling you into this. You need to go do that. No, no. God, God will tell you directly. He, you're in a relationship with him. Right? How odd would it be if my kids came to me and said, hey, um, your wife wants you to know that she loves you. Right? Well, why didn't she just come tell me directly? Right? We're in a relationship. That's the way it works. And if God wants you to be in something, he'll let you know. And then those who are prophesying over you the same thing that God has already spoken to you, now you know that's confirmation. It's not the other way around. Don't just take what somebody says and run with it. Pray about those things. Make sure they're from the Lord. Make sure God is calling you to those things. Uh, Paul knows Timothy is called. Timothy knows Timothy's called. Timothy knew Tim Timothy was called from the day he got uh, you know, called from the Lord, and then it was confirmed through different people. He had, the, he had a, Paul as his discipler, you know, taking him around, helping him, to show him what ministry is all about. The guy was set up to do ministry, and yet Paul is reminding him multiple times, don't, don't neglect your gifting. Hey, are you neglecting your gifting today? Are you here today, and, and God has spoken to you about what you're called to do, and you're, you've, been, you've just kind of been, well, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure. Listen, there's no time. 
you know, there's no time for, um, for, for us to step back and, and let fear stop us or be timid about what God's calling us to do. Now is the time. Right now is the time. We, you know, our world is falling apart. God's people need to rise up and be who they're called to be. You know, uh, some, sometimes you're going to be the only strength that maybe your neighbor or your, you know, your coworker or whoever it is, they see, maybe, they, maybe you're going to be the only strength that they see in this world at some point. What are you going to say? to You need to be who God's called you to be, and you need to step into the giftings that he's calling you to. And if you're neglecting your gifting today, today's the day. Stop running from the Lord, man. You need to step into that and be who he's calling you to be. Fifthly, um, we, we see that a good minister will immerse himself in the work of the ministry. Fifteen, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that you may see your progress. Paul tells Timothy to practice and meditate on, on these things, on the things that he's teaching him. To immerse himself in them, what? For the sake of growth. God is never calling you into half-hearted ministry. You either be all in or you don't get in. And at the end of the day, he's, he's one of those kind of people that he says, listen, I don't accept half-heartedness. You cannot come to God half-heartedly and say, will you become the Lord of my life? No, I won't. He won't. He won't. He calls you into a sincere relationship, an all-in relationship, and if you're not all-in, he's not all-in. That, that's the way it works. That's biblical. And so he's saying you need to be all-in in these things. God is all-in in you. He's already demonstrated that in the fact that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. You need to be all-in for him all in. And it doesn't mean that you stumble and fall along the way because you will, but, but, but all in kind of people get up, dust themselves off, and they get back in the battle. You need to be all in. A good minister will immerse himself in the work of the ministry. Last but not least, a good minister will keep himself accountable. Keep a, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul says keep a close watch Watch on yourself, Timothy. Keep a close watch on the way that you're living your life. Now listen, one of the best ways to keep a close watch on yourself is to invite somebody else into your life and allow them to help you keep uh, a close watch on your life. It's called accountability. And, and you know, uh, the Bible says confess your sins one to another. Now just don't go around confessing your sins to people. That's not a good idea, but... But it is a good idea to have somebody in your life that's a mentor, that's somebody you respect, uh, maybe a, a spiritual mother, spiritual father, uh, 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 you know, somebody who is, who is an anchor in your life relating to godly things. And you go to that person and you say, look, these are the things I need to keep a close watch on in my life. And they say, hey, man, I'll keep you accountable. Guess what? That only works if you really want to be kept accountable. I've had a lot of people come to me and say, hey, I, I would love to have some accountability, and then you keep them accountable. They're like, what are you doing? I'm just asking you how, how it's going in that area in your life. You need to, you know, you asked me to keep you accountable. How's it going in that area in your life? Listen, I got dudes that ask me those questions. And uh, um, they're, it's not comfortable at times, but you need to keep a close watch on yourself. You know your struggles. You know what you, you're, you're dealing with. You try, and, you try and do that on your own, and guess what? You're, you're, gonna be, um, you're not going to be successful. Keeping a close watch on yourself means keeping yourself accountable and doing whatever is necessary to get the things out of your life that are causing you to fall. Paul goes on, he says, persist in these things. Oh, he's, he goes on and says, be, be also watchful in your teaching. Be careful about your doctrine. Persist in this, for in so doing, you will save both yourself and uh, your, your hearers. Um, Paul isn't saying that, his, that Timothy's works are going to save him and us, or the people that hear him, but the idea is that our salvation is demonstrated by our works and is used by God to bring others to Christ. So as we walk out our salvation before people, they see that and they go, wow, that's something I, you know, I want in my life. And so that's how the the hearer is saved, and, and you're saved in the sense that, um, you know, it's a reality. You have that security knowing the way that I'm living my life is demonstrating that I'm saved in the first place. It's not getting saved by what you do. It's demonstrating that you're saved by what you do, and, and it also helps with other people. How are you keeping 
watch on your life and your teaching. Perhaps it's time for an accountability partner. Listen, maybe you've tried all kinds of other stuff and you're still stuck in the same place. Listen, maybe it's time for, and maybe God's putting somebody on your heart right now. That, that's, this is the person that God's calling you to you know, unveil yourself to. People take that, you know, the people that the Lord puts in your life will take that serious. You know, because it's a serious thing. And uh, I don't know about you, but I want to grow in my godliness. I want to grow in my Christ-likeness. And I'm not content where I'm at. I'm not content being enough like Jesus. I want to be more like Jesus. We pray that prayer, but do we really mean it? Lord, make me more like Jesus. Okay, let me break you in this area. And you're like, whoa, 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 I didn't mean that. That's not what I, I didn't mean make me like Jesus like that. But listen, sometimes that's what's required. Sometimes your sin has to be exposed for God to make you more like Jesus. You know that? And that's why God loves people enough to shine the light on their sin before people, even though it's embarrassing and it's shameful and all these kinds of things. God is trying to turn the heart back. And so he exposes things. He's a loving father. And as a loving father, I discipline my children. I have to sometimes, you know, discipline them in various different ways. You know, and, and ultimately, I, I don't do it because I'm mean. I do it because I love them. And I want them to grow. And that's what God wants for your life. Let me recap quickly. We've been talking about here today, a good minister will, allow, will not allow the culture to hinder his calling. He will be a good example. He will be devoted to the giving of God's word. He will not neglect his gifting. He will immerse himself in the work of ministry. And he will keep himself accountable. I hope that you'll consider these attributes of a, of, of a um, good minister here today and that you'll examine your heart against these things. You'll lay yourself up on the altar and you'll ask the Lord, Lord, are, are, are there areas in my life that I need to change? And we'll, you know, the Lord will help you with that. So let's just do that now. Let's take our, our thoughts and our, our, our struggles before the Lord this morning. Father, thank you for who you are and for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for um, just touching our lives this morning and calling us back, Lord, maybe some of us into a deeper relationship with you. We pray, Father, that you help us right now to uh, examine ourselves against what, what's been said and that, um, Father, you, you just convict our hearts, maybe exhort us in different areas, Father. We pray that you would help us right now to, uh, to just consider ourselves against the word of God this morning. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, that you love us so much. You love us so much that you sent your son that we can be washed and cleaned in the blood of Christ. And we pray for anyone that doesn't have a relationship with you this morning, God, that you help them to know that their, their, their sin has separated them, Father, but yet there is redemption available this morning through your son that he can, he's willing to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so will you help them this morning, Lord, to call upon you. Call upon the name of the Lord. We'll be saved, Lord. We pray for those this morning. Uh, that they can come forward and pray with somebody up front here. Saying, hey, I want to give my life to the Lord this morning. Father, for the rest of us, Lord, maybe we're doing well and we just want to grow more, Lord. Show us how to do that. Maybe we're struggling, Lord, and we don't know where to turn this morning. God, give us insight even now. Maybe there's someone you're calling us to go confess our sin to to help us in accountability. So we just lift all these things to you this morning, Father. We thank you. We ask you to bless our time as we close now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.